This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizer, and biomechanics from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. To start off this review, let's go over the planes of motion of the shoulder. For reference, the scapular plane is 30 degrees anterior to the coronal plane. With respect to abduction, abduction requires external rotation to clear the greater tuberosity from impinging on the acromion. Therefore, if someone has an internal rotation contracture, they cannot abduct greater than 120 degrees. 180 degrees of abduction comes from motion in two planes, in a 2 to 1 ratio. 120 degrees from the glenohumeral joint and 60 degrees from the scapulothoracic joint. Again, 180 degrees of abduction comes from motion in two joints in a 2 to 1 ratio, 120 degrees from the glenohumeral joint, and 60 degrees from the scapulothoracic joint. Now, let's talk about glenohumeral stability. Specifically, we'll discuss static restraints and dynamic restraints. Static restraints include the glenohumeral ligaments, the glenoid labrum, articular congruity and version, as well as negative intraarticular pressure. And with respect to negative intraarticular pressure, Keep in mind that if you release the head, it will sublux inferiorly. With respect to dynamic restraints, these include the rotator cuff muscles, the rotator interval, the biceps long head, and the periscapular muscles. With respect to the rotator cuff muscles, the primary biomechanical role of the rotator cuff is stabilizing the glenohumeral joint by compressing the humeral head against the glenoid. Now, let's talk about the static glenohumeral ligaments in a bit more detail. Specifically, we'll discuss ligamentous restraints in different arm positions. With the arm at 0 degrees at the side and a deduction, the inferior restraint is the superior glenohumeral ligament slash the coracohumeral ligament. Again, with the arm at 0 degrees at the side and a deduction, the inferior restraint is the superior glenohumeral ligament slash the coracohumeral ligament. With the arm at 45 degrees of external rotation and 45 degrees abducted, the anterior restraint and the posterior restraint is the middle glenohumeral ligament. Again, with the arm at 45 degrees of external rotation and 45 degrees abducted, both the anterior and posterior restraints are the middle glenohumeral ligament. With the arm in a deduction, the inferior restraint is the superior glenohumeral ligament slash the coracohumeral ligament. Again, with the arm in adduction, the inferior restraints include the superior glenohumeral ligament slash the coracohumeral ligament. With the arm at 90 degrees of external rotation, the anterior restraint is the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. The inferior restraint is also the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. And the posterior restraint is the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. So again, with the arm in 90 degrees of external rotation, the anterior restraint and the inferior restraint is the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament and the posterior restraint is the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. And finally, with the arm at 90 degrees, that is forward flexed, abducted, and internally rotated, the anterior restraint is the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, and the posterior ligament is the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, as well as the superior glenohumeral ligament slash the coracohumeral ligament. So again, with the arm at 90 degrees, forward flexed, abducted, and internally rotated, the anterior restraint is the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, and the posterior restraint is the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, as well as the superior glenohumeral ligament slash the coracohumeral ligament. So now let's talk about these static glenohumeral ligaments in a bit more detail. 
The superior glenohumeral ligament comes from the anterosuperior labrum to the humerus. This ligament is the restraint to inferior translation at zero degrees of abduction or neutral rotation, and it also prevents antero-inferior translation of the long head of the biceps, otherwise known as the biceps pulley. So the important thing to remember about the superior glenohumeral ligament is that it's a restraint to inferior translation at zero degrees of abduction or neutral rotation. The middle glenohumeral ligament resists anterior and posterior translation in the mid-range of abduction, that is approximately 45 degrees in external rotation. Again, the middle glenohumeral ligament resists anterior and posterior translation in the mid-range of abduction, or approximately 45 degrees in external rotation. With respect to the inferior glenohumeral ligament, we'll talk about the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, and the superior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. The posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament is the most important restraint to posterior subluxation at 90 degrees of flexion and internal rotation. Tightness leads to internal impingement and increased shear forces on the superior labrum, and this is linked to slap lesions. Again, the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament is the most important restraint to posterior subluxation at 90 degrees of flexion and internal rotation. Tightness leads to internal impingement and increased shear forces on the superior labrum, which is linked to slap lesions. With respect to the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, let's talk about stability and anatomy. With respect to stability, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament is the primary restraint to anterior-inferior translation at 90 degrees of abduction and maximum external rotation. This is also the late cocking phase of throwing. Again, with respect to stability, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament is the primary restraint to anterior-slash-inferior translation at 90 degrees of abduction and maximum external rotation, otherwise known as the late cocking phase of throwing. With respect to the anatomy of the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament, this anchors into the anterior labrum, and it forms the weak link that predisposes to Bankart lesions. The superior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament is the most important static stabilizer about the joint. There is a 100% increased strain on the superior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament in the presence of a slap lesion. And finally, moving on to the coracohumeral ligament, this comes from the coracoid to the rotator cable and limits posterior translation with the shoulder inflection, adduction, and internal rotation, and it also limits inferior translation and external rotation in an adducted position. Now, let's talk about the glenoid labrum, which is also a static restraint. The function of the glenoid labrum is to help create cavity compression and creates 50% of the glenoid socket depth. With respect to composition, the glenoid labrum is composed of fibrocartilaginous tissue. With respect to the blood supply, the glenoid labrum is supplied by the suprascapular artery, the anterior humeral circumflex scapular artery, the posterior humeral circumflex arteries. The labrum also receives blood from the capsule and periosteal vessels and not from underlying bone. And finally, keep in mind that the anterior superior labrum has the porous blood supply. Again, the anterior superior labrum has the porous blood supply. With respect to stability, the anterior labrum anchors the inferior glenohumeral ligament, which is the weak link that leads to Bankart lesions. The superior labrum anchors the biceps tendon, which is the weak link that leads to a slap lesion. With respect to anatomic variants of the glenoid labrum, a normal variant is when the labrum is attached to the glenoid rim, and a flat-slash-broad middle glenohumeral ligament is the most common normal variation. 
A cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament is often present in 86% of the population. A sublabral foramen is seen in approximately 12% of the population. Other anatomic variants include a sublabral foramen plus a cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament. A Buford complex is an absent anterosuperior labrum plus a cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament. This is seen in approximately 1.5% of the population. And again, the Buford complex is a cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament with attachment to the base of the biceps anchor and complete absence of the anterosuperior labrum. Attaching a Buford complex will lead to painful and restricted external rotation and elevation. Finally, a meniscoid appearance of the glenoid labrum is seen in approximately 1% of patients. Moving on to the soft tissue stabilizers, the posterior capsule is also a static stabilizer. It's typically thin, that is less than one millimeter, with no ligaments attached. The rotator interval is also a static restraint, and contracture of the rotator interval is seen with adhesive capsulitis, otherwise known as frozen shoulder. Laxity of the rotator interval results in a visible sulcus sign with inferior laxity with the shoulder in adduction. The rotator interval includes the capsule, the superior glenohumeral ligament, the coracohumeral ligament, and the long head of the biceps tendon that bridges the gap between the supraspinatus and the subscapularis. As far as the boundaries of the rotator interval, the rotator interval is bound medially by the lateral coracoid base, superiorly by the anterior edge of the supraspinatus, inferiorly by the superior border of the subscapularis, and the lateral apex is formed by the transverse humeral ligament. Again, the rotator interval is bound medially by the lateral coracoid base, superiorly by the anterior edge of the supraspinatus, inferiorly by the superior border of the subscapularis, and the lateral apex is formed by the transverse humeral ligament. Moving on to the rotator cuff, which is a dynamic stabilizer, the primary biomechanical role of the rotator cuff is stabilizing the glenohumeral joint by compressing the humeral head against the glenoid. The long head of the biceps is another dynamic restraint, and the long head of the biceps acts as a humeral head depressor. Keep in mind that it has a variable origin from the superior labrum, and it forms a weak link that predisposes to slap tears. The superior glenohumeral ligament and the subscapularis are thought to play a role in stabilizing the long head of the biceps. Moving on to osteology, we'll talk specifically about the humeral head, the glenoid, the coracoid, and the acromion. With respect to the humeral head, greater and lesser tuberosities are attachment sites for the rotator cuff. The humeral head is spheroidal in shape in 90% of individuals. It has an average diameter of 43 millimeters. It's retroverted 30 degrees from the transepicondylar axis of the distal humerus. Again, the humeral head is retroverted 30 degrees from the transepicondylar axis of the distal humerus, and the articular surface is inclined upward of 130 degrees from the shaft. Again, the articular surface of the humeral head is inclined upward 130 degrees from the shaft. With respect to the glenoid, this is a pear-shaped surface with an average upward tilt of 5 degrees. The average version is 5 degrees of retroversion in relation to the axis of the scapular body and varies from 7 degrees of retroversion to 10 degrees of antiversion. Again, the average version of a glenoid is 5 degrees of retroversion in relation to the axis of the scapular body and varies from 7 degrees of retroversion to 10 degrees of antiversion. With respect to the coracoid, this serves as an anatomic landmark or lighthouse for the deltopectoral approach. The coracobrachialis, pectoralis minor, and short head of the biceps attached to the coracoid. 
Finally, with respect to the acromion, it has three ossification centers. It has a meta or base, a meso or mid, and preacromion or tip. The acromiohumeral interval is 7 to 8 millimeters. The acromiohumeral interval may be normal on x-ray but decreased on MRI when the patient is supine and the weight of the arm is removed. This usually signifies multiple tendon tears. As far as acromial morphology, a type 1 acromion is flat, a type 2 acromion is curved, and a type 3 acromion is hooked. Now let's talk about blood supply, specifically to the humeral head. We'll talk about the ascending branch of the anterior humeral circumflex artery and the arcuate artery, as well as the posterior humeral circumflex artery. The ascending branch of the anterior humeral circumflex artery and arcuate artery provides blood supply to the humeral head. The vessel runs parallel to the lateral aspect of the tendon of the long head of the biceps in the bicipital groove, and be aware not to injure this when plating proximal humerus fractures. The arcuate artery is the interosseous continuation of the ascending branch of the anterior humeral circumflex artery, and this penetrates the bone of the humeral head. With respect to the posterior humeral circumflex artery, the most current literature supports this as providing the main blood supply to the humeral head. Again, the most current literature supports the posterior humeral circumflex artery as providing the main blood supply to the humeral head. Finally, with respect to a free body analysis of the deltoid, the best way to review this is visually on orthobullets.com, and we'll have a link in the show notes so you can go over this portion of this topic. We'll finish this review quickly discussing shoulder arthrodesis, and keep in mind that the optimal position for a shoulder arthrodesis is 15 to 20 degrees of abduction, 20 to 25 degrees of forward flexion, and 40 to 50 degrees of internal rotation. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, With the arm abducted 90 degrees and fully externally rotated, which of the following glenohumeral ligaments resists anterior translation of the humerus? And the choices are 1. Coracohumeral ligament 2. Superior glenohumeral ligament 3. Middle glenohumeral ligament four, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex, and five, the posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex. The correct answer to this question is four, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex. So with the arm in the abducted, externally rotated position, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex moves anteriorly, preventing anterior humeral head translation. Both the coracohumeral ligament and the superior glenohumeral ligament restrain the humeral head to inferior translation of the adducted arm and to external rotation in the adducted position. The middle glenohumeral ligament is a primary stabilizer to anterior translation with the arm abducted to 45 degrees. The posterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex resists posterior translation of the humeral head when the arm is internally rotated. Moving on to the next question. What structure provides dynamic glenohumeral stability by compressing the humeral head against the glenoid? And the choices are 1. The superior glenohumeral ligament, 2. The middle glenohumeral ligament, 3. The teres major muscle, 4. The deltoid muscle, and 5. The rotator cuff muscles. The correct answer to this question is 5. The rotator cuff muscles. So the rotator cuff is the main dynamic stabilizer of the glenohumeral joint. It functions most at mid-range motion, not at the extremes of range of motion. The superior glenohumeral ligament is a static stabilizer and resists inferior translation at zero degrees of abduction. 
The middle glenohumeral ligament is a static stabilizer and resists anterior translation in the mid-range of abduction, approximately 45 degrees in external rotation. The teres major adducts and medially rotates the arm and is not a significant stabilizer of the glenohumeral joint. The deltoid muscle primarily abducts the arm and is not the major stabilizer of the glenohumeral joint. Hiroshima et al. used EMG to characterize the sequential activation of musculature during overarm throwing and postulate that the sequence is very effective for the generation of high force and energy in the trunk. Moving on to the next question, what is the most important stabilizing mechanism in the mid-range of motion of the glenohumeral joint? And the choices are 1. Concavity compression, 2. Isometric articular ligaments, 3. Increased tensile force of the capsule, 4. Biceps tendon, and 5. Deltoid contraction. The correct answer to this question is 1. Concavity compression. So concavity compression is a stabilizing mechanism by which muscular compression of the humeral head into the glenoid fossa stabilizes the glenohumeral joint against shear forces. This is dependent on the depth of the concavity and the magnitude of the compressive force. Moving on to the next question, which of the following is considered a potential advantage of arthroscopic repair for anterior instability of the shoulder? And the choices are 1. Decreased healing time at the glenoid labral junction. 2. Completion of the procedure on an outpatient basis. 3. Faster return to play than with open procedures. 4. Preservation of external rotation. And 5. Decreased risk of recurrent instability in comparison to open repair. The correct answer to this question is for preservation of external rotation. So arthroscopic anterior labral repair spares the subscapularis and does not require significant mobilization or incision of the anterior capsule. Therefore, it is less likely to result in significant impairment in external rotation of the glenohumeral joint when compared with traditional open stabilization procedures. Recurrent instability rates are either slightly higher or equivalent to open procedures. Both procedures can be performed on an outpatient basis and require generally identical recovery times. Moving on to the next question. A cord-like middle glenohumeral ligament and absent anterosuperior labrum complex can be a normal anatomic capsulolabral variant. If this normal variation is repaired during arthroscopy, it will cause, and the choices are 1, anterior translation of the humeral head, 2, loss of external rotation, 3, excessive tightening of the biceps tendon, for superior migration of the humeral head, and five, no excessive changes. The correct answer to this question is two, loss of external rotation. So if the Buford complex is mistakenly reattached to the neck of the glenoid, severe painful restriction of external rotation will occur. Moving on to the next question. Besides the biceps tendon, which of the following structures also pass through the rotator interval? And the choices are 1. The coracohumeral ligament only. 2. The coracohumeral and superior glenohumeral ligaments. 3. The coracohumeral, superior, and middle glenohumeral ligaments. 4. The superior and middle glenohumeral ligaments. And 5. The superior glenohumeral ligament only. The correct answer to this question is 2. The coracohumeral and superior glenohumeral ligaments. So to quickly review, the rotator cuff is perforated anterosuperiorly by the coracoid process, which separates the anterior border of the supraspinatus tendon from the superior border of the subscapularis tendon, creating the triangular rotator interval, which is bridged by the capsule. The base of the interval is the coracoid process, 
from which capsular tissue, specifically the coracohumeral ligament, originates. The transverse humeral ligament at the biceps intertubercular sulcus forms the apex of the rotator interval. The coracohumeral and superior glenohumeral ligaments are considered to be structural contents of the rotator interval capsule, but each have separate origins and insertions. These ligaments are considered to be the most constant structures of the fibrous joint capsule. Arai et al. performed cadaver dissections to describe the anatomy as it relates to reconstructing the bicep sling as it exits the interval in cases of bicep subluxation. They note that an intact superior border of the subscapularis is needed, as well as tension in the superior glenohumeral ligament. Yang et al. reported a descriptive anatomy study on the coracohumeral ligament. All were located in the rotator interval, originated from the lateral aspect of the base of the coracoid process, and had histology more consistent with capsule than ligament. Moving on to the next question. The superior glenohumeral ligament is under the greatest stress when the humeral head and arm are in which of the following positions? And the choices are 1. Anteriorly translated with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and externally rotated. 2. Inferiorly translated with the arm in 5 degrees of adduction. 3. Anteriorly translated with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and internally rotated. 4. Inferiorly translated with the arm in 45 degrees of abduction and internal rotation and 5 inferiorly translated with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction and neutral rotation. The correct answer to this question is 2, inferiorly translated with the arm in 5 degrees of adduction. So the role of each glenohumeral ligament has been clearly defined by previous cadaveric studies that have sectioned different ligaments during different periods of stress on the glenohumeral joint. These studies have demonstrated that the superior glenohumeral ligament provides the most restraint to the shoulder joint when the arm is at zero degrees of abduction or in adduction and pulled inferiorly. Warner et al. tested 11 cadavers with varying amounts of abduction and rotation to see what ligaments provided specific directional stability to the shoulder joint. They found that the anterior and posterior bands of the inferior glenohumeral ligament provided the most restraint when the arm was abducted. In addition, they found the superior glenohumeral ligament provided the most restraint when the arm was at zero degrees of abduction and pulled inferiorly. And moving on to the final question, which of the following is considered the primary static restraint to anterior glenohumeral translation with the arm in 90 degrees of abduction? And the choices are one, shape of the bony articulation, two, negative intraarticular pressure, three, superior glenohumeral ligament complex, four, middle glenohumeral ligament complex, and five, inferior glenohumeral ligament complex. The correct answer to this question is 5, inferior glenohumeral ligament complex. So the geometry of the bony articulation is inherently unstable. The rotator cuff is a dynamic stabilizer and the capsulolabral tissues are considered static stabilizers. With the arm at 90 degrees of abduction, the anterior band of the inferior glenohumeral ligament complex is the primary static stabilizer to anterior translation. The middle glenohumeral ligament resists anterior translation at 45 degrees of abduction. The superior glenohumeral ligament resists inferior translation with the arm at one side. O'Brien et al. described the functional anatomy of the inferior glenohumeral complex based on a series of cadaveric dissections. They note that its orientation and design support the functional concept of this single structure as an important anterior and posterior stabilizer of the shoulder joint. That's all for this review about glenohumeral joint anatomy, stabilizers, and biomechanics.
Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.